This morning, I invite you to draw your sword, turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 6, as we continue in our sermon series, simply entitled The Gospel. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence, the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 6, I'll begin reading at verse 45, I'll conclude at verse 56. Mark chapter 6, let me begin at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed in the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not yet understood about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus They came throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever he, wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Mark's purpose is to clearly portray the identity of Jesus. His original audience was made up of Gentile believers living in the mid-60s of the first century, located in and around Rome. These early Christians were facing enormous persecution, and because of that, some of them were shrinking back in the faith and walking away from the gospel. Don't ever forget Mark's premise. His premise goes something like this, that if you and I know with accurate vividity the identity of Jesus, then we will cling to Christ at all times and above all things. If we know who Jesus really is, we'll realize that he is worthy of all of our adoration and praise. If we understand the identity of Jesus, then we will cling to him in moments of success and setback, in moments of pleasure and persecution. If we truly know the identity of Jesus, we will cling to him at all times and above all things. It is Mark who tells us that... Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go on to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. The setting of our story is the Sea of Galilee. It is on that body of water that many of the disciples cut their teeth and made their living. This was the location where the Palestinian fishing business boomed in the first century. At its longest point, it is 13 miles. At its broadest width, it spans eight miles. The disciples were very familiar with this oversized lake. They knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hands. Our story comes immediately on the heels of miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Out of all the miracles of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. 
There are some miraculous activities of Jesus that's read about in one gospel, some found in two gospels. There are a few miracles that are recorded for us in three gospels, but there's only one miracle outside the resurrection of Christ that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. Apparently, every disciple and every gospel writer knew that this was a monumental story in the ministry of Jesus, that it clearly identified the sovereignty of the Savior. And so out of all those that include the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, that's Matthew, Mark, and John, out of those three renderings of our story, it seems to be Mark who does the best job of connecting the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water of Jesus as clearly portraying the identity of Christ. For it is Mark and Mark alone who says that when Jesus got back in the boat, the disciples did not understand. They still did not understand the meaning of the loaves, and their hearts were still hard. Had they had a soft heart towards the Savior, they would have readily recognized Jesus as the Messiah who fed the multitudes and the one who walked on water to them. Now, Mark does a masterful job of telling our story so that you and I walk away with the calm assurance of the identity of Christ. So Mark gives us at least four divine characteristics of Jesus. From this story rendered in Mark's gospel, we find at least four divine characteristics of Jesus. The first one is this, that Jesus is the God who comes to our dilemma in spite of the distance. Jesus is the God who comes to our dilemma in spite of the distance. Once Jesus dismissed the crowd, it is Mark who tells us that he went up the mountainside to pray. This is not the first time that we find Jesus getting alone in a solitary place to pray in Mark's gospel. In the opening chapter, after a tremendous day of successful ministry, we read in chapter 1, verse 35 of Mark, that early the next morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went to a solitary place, and he prayed. At strategic points in the ministry of Jesus, we find the sovereign Savior of the universe on bended knee, crying out to God the Father. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said that prayer will lead you from sin or sin will lead you from prayer. And in the life of Jesus, we discover that prayer was the tether to the balloon of life. It was the string that, that helps us as followers of Christ not to be blown away by every distraction of disobedience. It is prayer that keeps us grounded. It is prayer that gives us direction. It is prayer that keeps us from being blown away and drifting away from every moment of personal setback or success. Listen, if you're anything like me, there are times when life happens and a uh, crisis crashes in on your existence. In those moments, we need to pray because it helps to ground us. But even greater still, when, uh, when we have moments of achievement, moments of success, that's when I have to pray all the more. That's when I have to pray all the harder because in those moments of success, if I'm not careful, I will get blown away by my own success. Here in the life and ministry of Jesus, we find in strategic moments 
of setback and success that Jesus bends his knee and cries out to God the Father. Just as a soldier gets instructions from the commander or a child receives instructions from a parent, so God the Son would pray to God the Father and get the daily agenda and the direction for his ministry. And we find Jesus praying. Apparently on this night in our story, he prayed for hours because we're told that he began to walk towards the disciples in the fourth watch of the night. At some time between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus had been praying for hours. It is late in the evening, early in the morning. And sometime in the night, a storm came up on the Sea of Galilee. That's not uncommon. Uh, Storms were very common in those days as they are today, and especially in the location of the Sea of Galilee, because that overlarge lake is surrounded by hills and mountains, and it is easy for the wind to whip around those mountains, uh, causing havoc for every sailing vessel on that body of water. And so the disciples are petrified. The severity of this storm is communicated by Mark when he says that the disciples were straining at the oars. They are, they are working hard just to stay afloat. I mean, these brothers are about to go down and they're straining at the oars. All of them trying to work together. All of them just trying to stay afloat because they're certain this storm is going to do them in. In John's version of our uh, passage, It is John who says that they were about three and a half miles from shore. In other words, they're right in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. This is enough time for them to have sailed successfully across the Sea of Galilee, but because of the storm, because of the wind, because of the rain, they are straining at the oars. They're exhausted. It's late in the evening, early in the morning, and they are just terrified because this storm has come up. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks on the water to his disciples. And they are petrified. They think it's a ghost. They scream out in horror and in fear. Whenever I read of the disciples screaming in fear, I'm reminded of the woman that I met at the movie theater last year. It was about a year ago when Nathan and I went to go see the Marvel movie Black Panther. If you haven't seen Black Panther, it's a phenomenal movie. It's epic. You need to see it. It is great. After the movie was over, I had to go to the bathroom. Now, this may be TMI for some of you, but you need to understand I'm a private person. And so one of the ways that privacy is demonstrated is that if I ever have a choice of going into a men's restroom where there's about a dozen stalls and urinals versus going into the private family restroom, I will choose the private family restroom every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And so at this given theater, right beside the men's restroom, there was a private single family restroom. So which one did I choose? I chose that one. I went up to that door and I gave the courteous quick pull. You know what that is. When you go up to the door and you just give a little quick pull just to make sure that the door is locked or unlocked because every sane, normal individual, when they go into a restroom like that, the first thing the sane, normal individual does is turn around and lock the door behind them. So I went up and gave the courteous quick pull and discovered that the door was unlocked. So I pulled that bad boy as open and wide as it possibly could go. Friends, I'm not prepared for what I see next. (laughs) All of a sudden, I see a large, obese African-American woman in (laughs) mid-squat. 
I don't know if she is standing up or if she is uh, sitting down because in this moment, she's frozen. And so she just kind of squats there and stares at me. And then without even mentioning a word, she gives out this most horrendous blood curling scream you could ever imagine. It was something like this. Ah! It was as if I mugged this woman. Now you would expect for me to shut the door, say something like, I'm sorry, I apologize, please forgive me. But no, I froze. She's screaming and I got the door wide open. Nathan, my son, is standing to my right and he says, dad, what are you doing? To which I replied, I don't know. The next thing I remember is that Nathan bolts in a sprint mad dash out the front door of the theater. He is running into the parking lot. Don't know where he's going. He's just getting out of the theater. All the while, this woman is still screaming, ah! The next thought that comes to my mind is that this large woman probably has a large husband. And he's going to come and sucker punch me in just a minute, nanosecond actually. And so uh, finally that jolts me. And without saying a word, I don't even say I'm sorry, apologize or anything. I just shut the door. I run as fast as Captain America. I make my way through the exit door of the theater. I pass Nathan in the parking lot and I give him one of these as if to come on, let's go. We get in the vehicle. I throw it into drive and, and we speed off never to return to that movie theater in a year. Every time I read that the disciples screamed in fear, in my mind, I visualize that woman staring at me in mid-squat. Ah! The disciples said, it's a ghost. They were terrified. They were exhausted. Let's be honest. They had good reason to scream. They hadn't seen Jesus for hours. Last time they saw Jesus, he was alone on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They were just trying to do what Jesus told them to do. They were trying to successfully make their way across the sea. They got stuck in a storm. They found themselves in a dilemma and they were certain this was going to be their demise. In Mark's gospel, it seems that the disciples uh, squeal like schoolgirls all the time. Just two, two chapters earlier in Mark chapter 4, they're on this same Sea of Galilee. They're in a boat and a storm comes up. It's a Lalops, which is a hurricane type storm, and they are petrified. But at least in Mark chapter 4, they had a sleeping Jesus in the boat. Here in Mark chapter 6, they feel abandoned by Jesus. They don't know where Jesus is. They, they are trying to do what he tells them to do, but, but they don't know where he is. They don't know what's happening. And now, not only is there a storm, but now there's a ghost that's coming towards them. They are scared to death. They are squealing. They are petrified. They cry out. They're in this spot because of obedience. Has that ever happened to you? You do your best to be obedient to the Lord. But in the process of trying to be obedient, you find yourself in a dilemma. And, and, and you don't know how to get out of it. You don't know what's going to happen. And, and let's just be honest, you're certain that's going to be your downfall. 
It's a problem. It's a predicament. It's persecution. It's a hurt. It's a hang-up. It's a bad habit. It's a sickness. It's a setback. It's suffering. It's something that's happened in your life, and you are certain that this is going to be your demise and do you in, and all the while, you're just trying to be obedient to the Lord. This morning, I want to tell you that Jesus is the God who comes to our dilemma in spite of the distance. See, nothing was going to stop Jesus from getting to his disciples. And nothing's ever going to stop Jesus from getting to you, his disciples, in the 21st century either. The three and a half miles, that was no problem for Jesus. The storm, not a problem for Jesus. The howling wind, not a problem for Jesus. The torrential downpour, not a problem for Jesus. The lack of sure footing, not a problem for Jesus. Jesus walked on the water and came to his disciples. He did not walk around the lake. He did not walk in the lake. He did not walk beside the lake as some have suggested. No, Jesus walked on the lake. He walked on the water and he came to his disciples. And there was nothing that's going to stop him. Nothing that was going to distract him. He was going to be successful in his mission. He was coming to the aid of his disciples. So there's absolutely nothing that's too big for Christ. Friend, I want you to know this morning there is no problem that's too big. There's no sin that's too gross. There's no past that's too insurmountable. There's no situation that is too overwhelming for the Savior because Jesus is the God who successfully comes and steps into our dilemma in spite of the distance. Jesus comes and makes his way to our mess. Jesus comes, stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He came on a rescue mission, not just on this night of the Sea of Galilee, but 2,000 years ago when he came to earth to seek and to save you and me. Jesus is always successful in his mission. And so on this story, he comes and he steps into the dilemma of his disciples regardless of the distance. You and I worship this Jesus. Why? Because we know who he is. He is the God who comes to our dilemma in spite of the distance. Second characteristic. Jesus is God in the flesh. In verse 48, it is Mark and only Mark who has the phrase that Jesus was about to pass by them. Now, that phrase doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know their location or that Jesus didn't care where his disciples were. I want you to note that it does not read that Jesus was about to pass them by. No, Jesus was about to pass by them. That makes a difference. This is a divine visitation. The way Mark renders this is very reminiscent of Old Testament language. For God passed by Moses on Mount Sinai, and God passed by Elijah on Mount Horeb. Here on the lake, he's about to pass by his disciples. The mere fact that Mark is communicating it this way says to us that this is God in the flesh. And the mere imagery that Jesus is walking on the water is a, is a great Old Testament theme of God. For it is Jeremiah who said, the one who stirs up the seas, his name is the Lord Almighty. 
Job chapter 9, verse 8 says, He being God stretches out the heavens and he treads on the waves of the sea. This is our God. The prophet Isaiah quotes the Lord as saying, When you pass the waters, they will not overwhelm you. The river will not sweep over you. For I am with you. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. When the disciples saw that this was Jesus coming towards them, they should have automatically concluded what Mark wants us to conclude, that this is Jesus who is God in the flesh. But don't just take him by his walk. Listen to his words. Listen to what he says. Jesus says to his disciples, do not be afraid. Take heart or have courage. It is I. That phrase that in your English translation is rendered, it is I, is the Greek word phrase, ego eimi. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, that is the same phrase that God uses in Exodus chapter 3. When God is speaking to Moses through a burning bush that's on fire but not being consumed, and Moses gives a laundry list of reasons of why he's not the right one to go liberate the children, it is eventually Moses who says, what if they ask your name? What name am I supposed to tell them? And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Lord says, you tell them, ego me sent me to you, which means I am sent me to you. This was a phrase that was used by God and God alone. Nobody verbalized this phrase. There are other ways to say the words I am in both Hebrew and Greek, but only God could use that language, ego a me. And then Jesus came along. And Jesus routinely would use that same vocabulary and it would get him in a, in a, in a world of trouble and a lot of hot water because of all the religious establishment of his day because they understood what he was saying. He is claiming to be God. In John's gospel, there are at least seven I am statements of Jesus. Seven messianic metaphors where Jesus is claiming divinity. He says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the vine. He says numerous things that communicate that he's not another God, a lesser God, or creation of God. He is God. It's not that Jesus is just a good preacher. It's not that he's just another prophet. It's not that he's just a religious teacher. Jesus is God in the flesh. In our story, all you have to do is watch him walk and take him at his word. And it clearly reveals that Jesus is the God man, fully God and fully human. He is God in the flesh. Therefore, he says to his disciples then, and he says to us today, you have nothing to fear. Don't be afraid. You have nothing to fear. Don't be afraid of the storm. Don't be afraid of the rain. Don't be afraid of the wind. Don't be afraid of the dilemma. Don't be afraid of the situation. Don't be afraid of the crisis. Don't be afraid. You have nothing to fear. Why? It's not because of who you are. It's because of who you have in your life. It's because of who Jesus is that you ought not to be afraid. So don't be afraid, Jesus says. He says this to his disciples in the first century, and I dare say he's still saying that to you and to me today in the 21st century. Do not be afraid of that cancer. Do not be afraid of that heart disease. Do not be afraid of that unemployment. Do not be afraid of your future. 
Do not be afraid of your problem that keeps you up at night. Do not be afraid of that lost relationship. Do not be afraid of the tragedy that you're walking through. And why are you not to be afraid? Because you serve Jesus and Jesus is God in the flesh and he makes his way to you and he tells you, do not be afraid. This is the Jesus that we worship. There's a third characteristic of who Jesus is. And the third divine characteristic is that Jesus is the God who invites you to come to him. In order to see this, you've got to read between the lines of Mark chapter 6, verses 50 and 51. I mean, you've got to peer between those lines to see this one. Because Mark omits a significant part of this story. If you know the story as it's compiled in Matthew, Mark, and John, then you realize that once Jesus told his disciples, do not be afraid, it is I. It's the loud mouth of the bunch. It's the ringleader, the apostle Peter. Lord, if that's you, let me come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter got out of the boat. And he started walking on the water. What Jesus was doing, Peter was doing. Peter was locked and loaded, his eyes upon the Lord. He was being successful. He was doing the impossible. He was doing the extraordinary. He was was strutting his stuff right there on the Sea of Galilee. He was walking on the water just like Jesus. But then he got distracted, took his eyes off the Lord. He heard the howling of the wind in his ear. He felt the splashing of the waves against his ankles. He began to look around and as he took his eyes off of Christ, he began to sink. And then immediately he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached down and pulled him up. And then verse 51 of our story, then they got into the boat. See, Mark doesn't tell us that part of the story. And sometimes I wonder, why does he omit this glorious exchange? between Peter and Jesus. This is a great part of the story, isn't it? This is a tremendous part of the story. It's a part that we, that we remember well, that we go to, yet Mark doesn't say anything about it. And why is that? It's at this point that the cynic rises up inside of me because Mark's apostolic connection is the apostle Peter, which means Mark got much of his information from Peter. When Mark sat down on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he sat down and and interviewed the apostle Peter and said, hey, tell me some of the stories about Jesus and what happened. And the cynic inside of me says that when Peter got to this part of the story, he said, yeah, Jesus walked on the water and then something else happened, but you don't really need to know about that. And then Jesus got in the boat. And the cynic inside of me wants to say that Peter just conveniently omitted telling Mark about this part of the story. But yet the Holy Spirit is always in charge, right? Because the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew not to omit it, but to include it. And I benefit from its inclusion. Because when I read that part of the story, I realize that Jesus is the God who invites us to come and follow him. He invites us to come us. And like Peter, we are flailing, floundering failures. 
And yet God in Christ still invites us to come. I don't know about you, but that gets me up in the morning. That that stokes my fire, puts some wind in my sails for me to realize I don't have to be perfect. I just got to be available. And when, when I come to Jesus and I invite him into my life and I ask him, let me come and do what you do. Let me say what you are saying. He invites me to come and I step out of the water and he begins to do some extraordinary things in me, to me, and through me. As long as I am locked and loaded on the Lord, I can do some extraordinary things for him in his ministry. But then just like Peter, there times I take my eyes off of Christ and when that happens like the apostle I begin to sink and I cry out Lord Jesus save me and Jesus does not let me just flounder in there a little while he immediately reaches out and rescues me I for one am grateful that Jesus uses flailing floundering failures like Peter and like myself because I am a floundering failure saved by the grace of God I am a floundering failure who's been rescued by the hand of the Lord I am somebody who's imperfect but I know the perfect one the Lord Jesus Christ and that perfect one invites imperfect people to come and follow him and when you come and follow Christ you my friend will do extraordinary things for the kingdom You will do what Jesus did. You will speak what Jesus spoke. You'll be able to do extraordinary things in his power when you step out in faith and you lock eyes with the Lord. You come to this story and you find that Jesus, he is the God who invites you to come as flailing and floundering And as much of a failure as you may think you are, he invites you to come. This glorious invitation is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. For God has always invited flawed people to come and follow him. In the prophet Isaiah, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. In Isaiah chapter 55, the Lord says, come, To me, all who are thirsty, come and drink. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All throughout the gospel, all throughout the Bible, there's a glorious invitation for people just like you, just like me, to come follow Christ. There's a fourth characteristic of Jesus from this story, and the fourth one is this, that Jesus is the God who immediately has the power to heal. He immediately has the power to heal. Not only did Jesus reach out and heal, save, rescue the apostle Peter as he floundered in the waves, but as soon as they landed in the region of the, of the Gerasenes, it is Jesus who went out, and when the people recognized who Jesus was, they came and they immediately brought all their sick to Jesus. One of Mark's favorite words is the word immediately. He uses it twice in this story. The first is in verse 45 and the second is in verse 50. And when Jesus landed, he immediately began to minister and to heal in his power. And whether he was in a town or village or countryside, it did not matter. People would flock to him. They would bring their sick in the marketplace. And like the woman with the issue of blood... They simply believed if we touch the hem of his garment, we will be healed. The last line of our story, Mark tells us that everyone touched by Jesus was healed. 
Because Jesus is the God who immediately has the power to heal. This morning, I wonder, do you need a touch from the master's hand? Anybody in the house who needs healing? Maybe it's spiritual healing. Maybe it's bodily healing. Maybe you need healing in your marriage, healing in your finances, healing in your relationships. Maybe you need to be healed in your relationship with your daughter or your boss or a coworker or a neighbor. Maybe you need healing in some area, other area of your life. But this morning, if you need healing, you've come to the right spot because here, the same Jesus that walked on the water is the same Jesus that walks throughout this sanctuary. And I want you to know that he is God. This Jesus is the God who comes to our dilemma in spite of the distance. That this Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the God who invites you to come and to follow him and to do some extraordinary things. And this Jesus is the God who immediately has the power to heal your sin-sick soul. I want you to know this morning that if you come in need of the Savior, you will discover the Savior who can meet your need. Jesus comes and God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his foot prince in the sea and he rides upon every storm. This Jesus has come to this place to seek and to save you. He knows who you are. He knows how you are and he knows where you are. He knows what you need. And in this moment, I just want you to understand the identity of Jesus. Because like Mark, I've just got a holy hunch that if you know the identity of Jesus, You will cling to Christ at all times and above all things. If you really know who Jesus is, if you know what you have at your disposal, if you know the salvation that only he can give, if you know the healing only he can provide, if you know the worth of the one who is worthy of our worship, praise, and adoration, if you know the Jesus that's on our lips, if you know the Jesus that's in our minds, if you know the Jesus that's on our hearts, if you know the Jesus of this book, if you know Mark's Jesus, then you will cling to Christ at all times and above all things. So this morning I wonder, Do you need Jesus? Do you need a touch from the master's hand? Do you need to just get out of the boat and follow him and lock eyes with him doing extraordinary things this morning? I'm just inviting you with all of your strength, all of your straining, all of your effort, all of your heart, all your mind. I'm just asking at the best of your ability to come to Jesus. Because the same Jesus that walked on the sea is the same Jesus that walks in my heart. And this I know to be true. So church, beloved, come. Come to Jesus. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And there are people at various spots. There are some people, uh, they don't know you as Savior and Lord. I pray that today they will trust your word. There's some people in this sanctuary and they hear my voice, but they also hear the raging storm that's around them. Right now, they're in the middle of a a terrifying storm and it leaves them petrified. And Lord Jesus, you're speaking into their heart, do not fear. Lord, there's some people who just came out of a storm, some that are just going into it. 
some of us that just need to have the courage to come and follow you, get out of the boat and do something that you're calling us to do that scares us to death, but it's extraordinary. Oh, Father, we pray that as we have this moment of invitation that you'll be pleased with how obedient we are to Christ. Help us to cling to the one who has us in his clutches, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.